I was in the back of the car and I made believe I was asleep so that my mother and father wouldn't talk to me because I just wanted to keep feeling that feeling. I still had it with me in the car. And I, I knew then I just wanted to keep feeling it. And so, so music was totally all over my body. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. No matter what you do or where you are in your life right now, I'm pretty sure you've heard the word no more than once. And some of those no's might make you feel like you don't want to get out of bed. This podcast is here to tell you, you're not alone. If all these people can walk through the valley of no's to get to their yes, why can't you? What's up, guys? This is Matt Del Negro. Welcome back to 10,000 No's. I am pumped for this episode. I've got Hall of Fame songwriter Chip Taylor. He is amazing. Um, I've, I'm really excited that 10,000 No's audience has been growing steadily. I'm getting more and more feedback from people, specific feedback telling me that the podcast is actually helping them make changes in their lives, which is really cool. Really, really cool for me to hear. So thank you. If you are liking it, you know, we talk about iTunes reviews that really helps the visibility of the show, but also just if you want to text your friend or email your friend or respond to, if you're on social media, respond to some of my posts and I'll do a little shout out to you in the post, whatever it is to just kind of get this out there to more people. I really appreciate it. And also if you're late to the game, go to 10,000nos.com or just it's actually easier if you go on Apple Podcasts app or Spotify and just go through some of the past episodes and see ones. There's really been some amazing guests. I feel like I'm pinching myself. There have been so many cool guests. Uh, and today's guest is really, really great. They call him the godfather of Americana. Chip Taylor, his songs have been recorded by some eh, not not such great artists, you know, just uh, just some not very well-known musicians like Frank Sinatra, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Willie Nelson, Aretha Franklin, Linda Ronstadt, many, many more. I can't even list them all here. They have all sang Chip's songs, which is incredible to me. Um, 2016, he was inducted into the Songwriter Hall of Fame. Um, he has had songs featured in over 115 movies and TV shows. His career spans over five decades. Uh, he's got He's written Wild Thing, Angel of the Morning, uh, which is, you know, just call me angel in the morning, angel. You know that song. Um, since 2000, this is how prolific he is. He has released nearly an album a year. He has two new albums ready for release in addition to 27 albums already out. It's nuts. Uh, he, Chris Christopherson, John Preen in the 70s were the leaders of the alt country movement. Um, and... Here's what was really cool. I'm always trying to take this, whatever we're talking about, and have it apply to you guys, whatever it is you do. A lot of you are creatives that are listening to this podcast, but not everyone, you know? Um, my theory is even if you consider yourself a, quote, creative or you don't, you are in some capacity a creative person. The way you parent, the way you do anything, you know, you are either kind of working from a set of rules or you're working on instinct or some combination of the two. And what I found really interesting here, and I want you guys to just 
keep your ears open for it, is at one point in the conversation, I, I mistakenly commented, I said, so you write poems and put them to music. And he quickly stopped me and he said, no, 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 that's actually not what happens. You know, I actually hear music in my head and I start creating it and he puts it much more eloquently. And then the words come and I match the words to the song, but it wasn't like he writes poems and then he puts them to music. And, and what I found out was Chip Taylor is a guy that really works from instinct. And it's not surprising. He's got two brothers, also super talented in their fields. Um, his older brother, Barry, was... Uh, the the guy that created the I believe it was the uh, instrument that senses when uh, the next earthquake is going to hit. Uh, he talks about it, so if I'm butchering that, I apologize. And his brother John is John Voigt, the Academy Award winning actor who I love. You know, Coming Home and Midnight Cowboy, just a great actor known for his great instincts. So it runs; it's in their DNA. Um, but but really what what ensued was this riveting conversation about trusting one's own instrument and a refusal to guess the market in the arts and allowing oneself to to produce an enormous volume of high quality work by nurturing the soul and providing the space in one's life to to always be able to create uh which you know is a different take than a lot of my past guests who have talked about figuring out what the market needs and reverse engineering from there in order to bring their art and, and fill a gap. Chip largely does not work that way. And I found it fascinating. Uh, really authentic soul. I loved him. Here he is, singer-songwriter extraordinaire, Chip Taylor. Yeah, I have two brothers, Barry and John. Barry's the eldest and John is the middle. And we're all only... a year or so apart. So we were hanging out together all the time. And we all had, uh, we were living in a household that uh, my mom and dad were just kind of encouraging us to find our own way and to do our own things. And pretty much immediately when I was four or five years old, I gravitated to, to music. And uh, we had a Motorola radio in the house and uh, between the boys bedroom and the kitchen and, and, Pretty much that was my radio. Mom and dad knew I loved music and let me listen to that. And dad played some music around the house. He would play Bing Crosby and the, the Ink Spots and stuff like that. And um, So I was interested in that right away. And we we used to go to um, – we used to, on Monday, dad was a golf professional. Back in those days, it wasn't really a glamorous kind of a profession, but it was a – he was a poor kid from Yonkers, and he, it was a job, and he was very like, much liked by the members, and uh, and it was good. Uh, it, one problem Dad had was Monday was his day off, and the boys had to go to school on Monday, and so he devised a plan where he he concocted this thing, and he told the principal of the school that Monday was a Czechoslovakian holy day, and his his boys had to get out of school early. <laughs> so so it uh, it noon it was a recess for lunch and then the boys would the normal classes would stay till three and we were out at, at lunchtime and and we went to services our first service was a stop at joe's hot dog stand on central avenue 
And then, and then the last thing we always did, and this is probably why John got in the movies, we went to a double feature movie in, in the lower, in Getty Square in Yonkers. But in the middle of it was a stop at a train station. I loved that, where Dad would, Mom would drive and Dad would we'd go down a hill and Dad would take the coins from his pocket and give us coins to put on the track. You know, we'd watch to see if the train was coming. And, and uh, when it wasn't, we put the coins on the track and, and watched and watch the train come by and, and run over those and leave us some of the magical silver discs that we would show off to our friends in school. So, so uh, I think John's thing, he gravitated toward acting very fast. Well, John, you know, you have certain kind of gifts. And, and meanwhile, Brother Barry, who's really done the best work of all the Voight boys. Barry is the guy that invented the formula that predicts when volcanoes will erupt. And he's a hero in that uh, scientific community. And he's a great guy with a great sense of humor. And we're so close. And uh, and John was uh, always into performing for the, for the family. And he was like, he, he could do dialects when he was like eight years old, nine years old. And he great sense of humor. And uh, he'd do things like the Sid Caesar routines that you'd see on television. And so that we had our direction. What I'm saying really, Matt, is that we had our direction set early. I love music. John was very into uh, acting and uh, performing in that manner. And Barry was in the woods with Uncle George because uh, uh, he was the first and the favorite of the uncle and, uh, and the aunt. And he would go in the woods and and hunt and fish and bring home rocks and show the family and stuff like that. So we all were set in our direction early on. And what was the split? What was the age split between you guys? One, it was a year. There was a year, little more than a year, each one of us. Barry's the eldest, John in the middle, and me the baby. And uh, so, so you guys were super tight. Yeah. 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 And, and, and a big sense of humor floating around. The, I mean, Dad treated every day, and Dad and Mom worked too. Mom was a school teacher at times, and she was a swimming instructor uh, at times. And but but Dad was the one who, who you know put the food in, on the table. And uh, every morning he would get up in the morning and he'd say, "I remember clearly, and whether it was raining or the sun was shining or whatever, it didn't matter to Dad." He'd say, "He'd say, all right, boys." Just just before we went off to school, he was ready to go to work. He said. All right, boys, here we go. What is this day going to bring to us now? Let's go find out. Because I have a lesson with Howard John over at 830. I'm going to try to cure his duck hook. I think <laughs> I'll be able to do that, you know. Now let's see what you boys come up with. So there was always this sense in the family, mom and dad, of what are we doing? How did it go? What what did we like today? What was our interests? Oh, you like that song? Oh, well, show me that. Oh, okay. That, you know, that kind of encouragement. So it was a, a yeah. good, good household. To, and dad used to tell stories all the time when we put us to bed. And for years, I mean, how, when, when you're in tune with your parent or something, you, you trust them to the end of the world. And dad used to tell us that, Everybody thought he was a golf professional, he said. But, but boys, really, 
and you have to be sworn to secrecy on this. You have to be sworn to secrecy on this. I am an FBI man. <laughs> and and what, ha- what happens after I give my last lesson, I go down, and my assignment is down on the docks in New York. And I, here's what happened last night. And he tells us this story about hiding in the oil drums and catching the, the smugglers and stuff like that. And, and I mean, when, I, when I was in high school, my, somebody asked me, so what does your father do? And I, <laughs> and I said, Willie, I said, most people think he's a golf professional. <laughs> and, I, and then I said, what am I saying? He's a golf professional. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. That is really great. You know, it's, it's, um, that's pretty, pretty cool that he was a storyteller and you and at least one of your brothers became storytellers professionally. Um, I was thinking that before we sat down, um, you know, I was listening to some of the songs that you, some, I mean, you've written so many songs, um, but I was just uh, looked up, you know, Wild Thing and Angel of the Morning, which everybody knows. I mean, if, if someone's listening and you think you don't know those songs, just, just go Google them and you know those songs. Um, everybody, I don't care what age you are. And I was thinking, you know, like the one that I happened to stumble upon for Wild Thing, it had something like 6.5 million views. And I just thought, man, that's, that's a one little venue of it. How many movies has it been? And how many, you know, how many times has it been played on the radio? And I was just thinking, what is that like? Or how do you do you even think about it or how do you wrap your head around the fact that you created these stories, these poems, you put them to music? And- well, it's not really like that. It's not, I wouldn't say it was like that. Oh. Uh, uh, let me just correct you a little bit. You said you, you, you have these poems and you put them to music. I never looked at writing like that. I never felt that's not how I did it. I would uh, pick up the guitar or in some manner hum some nonsense things to me and wait until some words felt fell in together with some melody. And sometimes it made no sense at all, but if it gave me a chill, then I, uh, then I want, I, I would continue it. So it, w- it wasn't a thought out poem and then put to music. It was, a, everything was for me is always written at the same time, words and music. And, uh, it's the spirit of that that really captures me. And I, and I said the chill factor. I should tell you about that because that's probably the thing that's guided me more in my career performing and writing, particularly writing. Uh, when I first uh, – I told you how much I was into music when I was a kid. And, and there was one particular day that there was a life changer for me. It was I, – I guess I was around seven or something in my – Mother and father had an extra ticket to a Broadway show and, and no babysitter for me. And, and uh, so they wanted me to go with them. They told me I was going with them to the show and I did not want to go. And we went to see my Wild Irish Rose and I sat in the fourth seat. I was very angry. I didn't, I wanted to be home. And then all of a sudden the orchestra started playing and my whole body was on fire. And I never felt that fire before, that chill thing. And I remember when I left the theater, 
I, I was in the back of the car and I made believe I was asleep so that my mother and father wouldn't talk to me because I just wanted to keep feeling that feeling. I still had it with me in the car. And I, I knew then I just wanted to keep feeling it. And so, so music was totally all over my body. From, I, I would say before that in some way, but at that point it was like huge. And, and that, that chill factor, I was always looking for that all the time to, to feel that again. And then the next really powerful blast of that I got was when I heard the radio Maybe shortly after that one rainy night, I heard Wheeling, West Virginia. From now, I'm talking. I'm I'm in Yonkers, New York, and the signal from Wheeling came in, and I heard country music for the first time, and my body was totally on fire. And it wasn't the clever songs or anything like that that I liked. It was the sad songs, and it was just totally. I loved the feeling, and and that's what's kind of guided me all the time when I write songs and. If I listen to something, I'm, I'm looking. I'm looking for that chill factor, and uh, I certainly had that when I wrote. Uh, you know, and, it, and it, certainly when I, with Angel of the Morning, I, it was all over me when, as I was writing that song. And to a, another extent, some people say, "How could saying guy that wrote Angel of the Morning write Wild Thing?" Well, it's not that different. It's, it's just a feeling. I well, when I was writing Wild Thing, it had that little chill factor that was part of it, that pulse. And it made me feel good. It wasn't supposed to be clever or funny or anything like that. It just felt good. And it was it was sexual, but it was like uh, that wasn't the issue. I wasn't trying to make it anything. It was just it was honest. Little, it was a little blast of honest emotion, and it gave me a little bit of a chill. So I would how, say, how old were you, when, Chip, when you went when you got taken to that play? How old was that? I think around seven years old. Man. Yeah. And I, I mean, I knew music was everything to me. And, uh, uh, but, you know, then in high school, I, you know, there was no country music being played around Yonkers, New York. But in high school, I had a, a, there was one little band that lost their lead singer and they, they knew how much I loved, loved the stuff. And the guy said, if you learn to play the guitar by Thursday, I think it was a Monday, he said, you can take over the band. And, uh, and I learned three chords and he gave me a capo, a wonderful guy, Greg Gordiak. And, uh, and I took over the band and, uh, and, and we later were signed to the old black record label King records at in, in New York by uh, one of the greatest A&R people ever, Henry Glover. And, uh, uh, how old were you at that point when you signed? 16, uh, man. Yeah, it was, uh, and it was a, yeah, it was a very good lesson to me. Uh, what, how, how that happened, because back in those days, if you were you had a group or something like that, and you wanted you made a demo at some studio of, of your song, the, the way it, you were told to get a deal was to send your song plus a picture of your group or yourself to these record labels, or Dot Records, Decca Records, whatever. And we. We did that. We made demo and, and sent the pictures to four or five different labels. And we got a very similar response from all of them that said, you know, thank you very much, but 
this is not for us at this time. You're welcome to send something again. So it was all this form letter of saying no. And Greg, the guitar player, he had a, such a passion for music and loved my writing and loved the demos. And he just got the demos and pictures and he went to the city one day on his own and walked from record company to record company. And most of them turned him down. He walked into King Records Division in New York, which was where Henry Glover was. And the guy that signed James Brown, Little Willie John, Hank Ballard and the Midnighters. And he walked into the office and the secretary was talking to him and Henry had his, the door to his office open and saw Greg there and he said, Maureen, that, that, that's okay, have, have, that's, have him come in here. And so he said, uh, he met him, he said, okay, Greg, what do you got? Show me what you got. And he listened to the demo and he said, who's singing that song? Greg said, that's uh, the lead, the leader of the band, Wes Voigt. I was known as Wes Voigt back then. And uh, he said, who wrote that song? He said, he did. He said, does Wes have a phone number? He said, yeah, I gave him my phone number. I got a phone call. He said, uh, Wes, I said, yeah, this is, this is, I'm, I'm, I'm him. He said, this is Henry Glover from King Records. And I'm sitting here with a friend of yours, Greg, who just played me your demo. And I want to tell you something. From now on in, from this day forward, you and the boys are King Records recording artists. <laughs> that was something. That was, just, just like that. Just like that. Yeah, just like that. And, and, uh, as honorable and nice a guy and so friendly towards musicians and, and artists and meant so much in the business. So here is, here is one of the all-time great A&R guys accepting Greg in from standing outside. There's something about Greg. He's a passionate guy and a kind guy. And I don't know, for some reason, Henry invited him in, listened, and minutes later we, we were <laughs> The King Records, and that, that was just that how was many so- how many songs? Sorry to interrupt. How many songs do you think, if you had to guess, had you written by that point at age sixteen? Hundreds, thousands? Uh, no, no. By that time, maybe maybe seventy or eighty or something like that. Mostly bad, <clears throat> but some good. And the the demo we played. <clears throat> was a, actually one of the songs I like to sing in person these days. The first song I really wrote. And uh, uh, it's called Faded Blue. And I'm, uh, Henry signed the band on the basis of that song. And the funny thing is, is we, we didn't even record that song. I started writing new songs and he chose other ones for the session. So but, uh, it was a good thing. So the, but the real lesson there is the passion that Greg had to not, not take no for an answer he was going to be turned down and to go there and do it. And, and that was a really big lesson for me. I, some, something similar happened to me. I wasn't, I had one chart record that, that made a little bit of noise. Actually it was number one in Hartford and Maryland and a few other places, but it didn't make enough money for me to, I mean, it didn't sell enough records or make me important enough to, to make any money touring or anything like that. So um, I decided to try try my hand at writing for other people. And I had heard about a very good publisher in the city. 
uh, and I I call the uh, company, and and they I ask if I can get an appointment, and they and the secretary said that no, I, I the fellow who ran the company was Aaron Schroeder, and I said he said no, he was too busy to see me. And I called back the next day. I said, uh, what about today? Can I see him today? And she said, oh, no, no, Chip, you can't. You can't. Uh, by this time, my name was Chip Taylor. I said, no, no, you can't. And uh, so I did like what Greg did. I, I remember getting off the phone and looking at my guitar and then picking it up, putting it in the case, going to the train station, taking the train down to the Grand Central, walking up to 1650 Broadway, taking the elevator to the eighth floor, walking into the office and over to the desk. And the young lady said, yes, can I help you? And I said, yeah, I'm here to see Aaron Schroeder. She said, uh, well, can, I, can I have your name, please? And he said, uh, uh, yeah, my name is Chip Taylor. She, she said, Chip, you called me several times. I told you Aaron didn't have any time to see you. I said, I know you said that. I said, but, uh, you know, time's very important to me, so I don't want to waste any of it. So I, I'm just going to sit here and I'll wait till he has some time. And it, no matter how long it takes, if he can see me today, that's great. If not, I'll be here tomorrow. I'll wait. And she just looked at me. And uh, I think at first she started to mad, but then she she had kind of like a twinkle in her eye. <laughs> I, went, I went and sat down, and about 45 minutes later, Aaron came outside, and he said, uh, you're still here. I said, yeah. He said, all right, I have an appointment, and I'm going to be away for about an hour. If you're still here when I get back, I'll see you. Is that fair? I said, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> <laughs> and so he saw me, and I played the song for him, and then he 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 said, Chip, do you mind playing that again? I want to call my friend in here. So he said, Wally, come in here, please. I'd like you to hear this. And he got his cohort, Wally Gold, to come in. I played the song again, and they looked at each other, and and they kind of smiled at each other. And, and Aaron looked me square in the eyes, and he said, Chip, we would be proud to publish that song. And I was so excited because I knew he was a really good publisher. And I signed the contract right there, and I walked out. I couldn't wait to tell my folks. I walked out to the elevator, and just before the elevator came, Aaron came out again, and he said, Chip, pay attention to me now. He said, the next time you get a, a song published by any publisher, he said, you never leave the office without one of these. And he handed me a check for $30, an advance against royalties. And I couldn't believe it. I got downstairs and I called my father up. I said, Dad, you're not going to believe this. I said, a very good publisher just gave me an advance of $30 for a song today. I said, if I can write five of these a week, I can make a living. <laughs> and so that was, the, that was the start of me for a few years, uh, going door to door with publishers and selling my songs for $30. I was, you hear these stories about selling songs for a certain amount of money. You know, that doesn't mean it's not a bad thing. Uh, it was, uh, it was a, a very good thing. These were very good publishers. And what they would do, you didn't lose the rights to your songs. You, 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 uh, the deal was you own half the songs for the life of the song. And they did. They owned half. And they pay you in advance money. 
And uh, if they, if your song is worth talking about, they probably did a darn good job. So a lot of these stories that you hear, oh, I gave my soul my song for a drink of whiskey or I, whatever. Uh, a lot of these these stories, some of them may be true. They got bad deals and lost rights, but I think for the most part, they always retained half of the rights. Uh, the most of the writers all had half of the rights. Really? Yeah. So, so you know, never you never felt uh, t- taken advantage of, even as never, a sixteen-year-old kid. Not by anybody. I thought it was a. They were energetic people. These these uh, this this wasn't a placid kind of business then. We were, I mean, this was at the time when it had been before that kind of a kind of very much run by. you know, I'd, I'd say really white-dominated radio, you know, with very prejudice out there. But this was a period of time when all of a sudden uh, Blackboard Jungle came out with Rock Around the Clock, which had already been off the charts because of the prejudice. It would never got above the top 50. But when Blackboard Jungle came out, Rock Around the Clock came back on the charts as Blackboard Jungle went to number one, so did Rock Around the Clock, and that was the start of rock and roll. So when I am entering the business, this is all the an- part of anarchy. We're taking over the business, and it was so all the people, the publishers that I was working with, they were real energetic, and everybody couldn't wait to hear the next great song, and and it was a, a blend of the black culture and the white culture, and it was all it was great, and so it was a. Uh, uh, so all those publishers I met back then, there were so, and there were some publishers that had funny kind of reputations, and I, even though I was friendly with them, I would steer clear of that. But uh, and what year was that when you went into Henry Glover, that original one? Nineteen fifty six. Nineteen fifty six. Wow. Um. I just, I just. You know, your your stories are, I mean, we've only been talking for 25 minutes and I'm thinking, God, this is this is a movie. It's almost like it, it sounds like a movie that I'd be like, oh, this is great. But it, it just seems it just seems like so perfect. Like it, it really is. It's got such a, a nostalgia to me. I, just, I could listen to you tell these stories forever. Um, I love I love, you know, I have a similar um relationship to what I do as an actor. Uh, I found it later, but that you call it the chill factor. It's like, I, I would always say when I'm talking to people, it's like, it's like the call. It's like, I was called. I didn't expect it. It came and I couldn't avoid it. And it sounds like that's for it to grab you at age seven. And then for you to be obviously you must have worked your ass off doing it, but also there's a talent there that when you walk in and you're, you know, you meet a guy like Henry Glover the first time, age 16, or or you didn't even meet him, your friend Greg meets him and he gets on the phone and signs you. It's, it's amazing. It's, it's, yeah. I, I love to hear this. Yeah. Um, so, so where are, I guess, um, in keeping with the theme of this show, where are there any flip sides where you felt you were doing everything right? Um, you're you're in a groove writing, uh, and maybe things 
were not falling into place or people just weren't buying what you had to sell for a period of time? Were there any points when you kind of felt like, you know, man, what's going on? And, and how do I, how do I get back on track? Well, I'll give you a, a, I'll give you an interesting, an interesting thing happening. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, first of all, it wasn't work. I loved writing. And so it was more like just doing what you did, but then from the idea of going to trying to get somebody to like what you have uh, and hoping they do and, and hoping like that song that I sold the first song that I sold for $30, that song became a big hit by Bobby bear. So that, that was an, a nice connection and it worked. Um, a, there were a couple of one, one, one thing that in that period of time, I had known a guy named Bobby Scott, you know, taste of honey, Bobby Scott, wonderful, wonderful writer yeah. who wrote, he ain't heavy. He's my brother. One, one, one. Oh yeah. Yeah. And uh, Bobby was a, a brilliant, brilliant orchestrator and musician. And in the uh, in the late fifties, in the in the early sixties, he he and Quincy Jones worked together at Mercury Records. They were co-heads of A and R. And when I was going into the city to sell my songs. Every once in a while, I would stop by their place at the end of the evening because I knew they wound down at around five o'clock and five thirty, and and we'd have a glass of scotch together over there, and we'd talk about things. And I just looked up to them. And when I would walk in, I would always see these, you know, Quincy would be in the middle of writing a horn chart for some session, and Bobby was writing a suite, and the, and so those those notes were always floating around the table you could in plain sight because all these orchestrations. And I remember being jealous cause I didn't, I didn't know how to read music. I couldn't, I didn't know anything about that. And I was saying, you know, I got to learn how to do this stuff. So at some point, one day I made some kind of contact at Juilliard and they recommended somebody who would, who could, privately teach me and gave me a number and uh, and I had not contacted the person but had left a message or something and I saw Bobby and Quincy that afternoon and I and I just told them he said well how you doing how was your day and I said well I think pretty good I took a step in the right direction you know the stuff that you guys do here and I don't know how to do that to write horn charts and I can't write those notes down and Bobby, you're doing it. So I, I contacted some, somebody and I'm, I'm going to start learning how to do that. And Quincy said, you what? <laughs> and, and, and Bobby said, listen, listen, Chip, you remember that song you played us yesterday? He said, you played us a song. I don't know if you know how much we liked that song. We talked about it after you left. You think that song would be better if you knew how to write notes? There's only one chance it would never have come or would be worse. He said, you're a blues guy. Just be a blues guy. Quincy said, don't even think about taking lessons. Just do what you do. And I remember the feeling I had was almost like the feeling when I first got the chill. Is here's these guys that I'm looking up to. And, and they're telling me that I'm okay the way I am. <laughs> and that I walked out of that. And, 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 and not only that, but they, they made, they put a focus on the song I had written. And, 
it was such a powerful thing when I left them. I definitely knew I wasn't going to take any lessons yeah. and I was going to just keep doing what I was doing and, and find my way through it all. And, uh, and it, it was, uh, I, 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 I walked with a sure step after that meeting and uh, some very good things happened shortly after that. Yeah. Yeah. It's always generous too for the, I mean, there's so many lessons in that, but it's always generous when someone like that, who you admire and look up to, um, it is they're usually the best or I I've found in my dealings, the one, the people that are really talented and the best, they're, they're so secure. They're not worried about anything. So they're, they are, if they see something good in you, they tell you and, and that, effect yeah. is so powerful for someone, you know, who's, who's going along and, and slugging it out. It's, um, it's so yeah, powerful to have that yeah. validation, you know, it's, that's very well said. That's exactly, exactly that, that can, that can lead person to the next good level, the next step. Yeah. And you also made me think of an early acting class I took in New York. And I remember, you know, I came to acting kind of late. I was I was an athlete growing up and into college, and and so I always had an insecurity that um, I didn't know enough about the theater. I didn't know I hadn't read enough plays, so I was kind of always constantly trying to. Pl- felt like I was playing catch up, but I felt like I had some pretty good instincts. And I remember being in a class, and people would put a scene up. And there were always a few people in class that knew all about the playwright and all about when it was written and all of, all of the, the dramaturgy around the play. But and I would sometimes get intimidated and think, "Oh man, I you know kind of get down on myself." And then I would, you know, remind myself, "Yeah, but that person went and they were terrible. <laughs> like, why? Why am I worried? Like they they may know more about the surroundings, right. but that doesn't make them a better artist. It doesn't. Right. In in fact, in a lot of ways, that cerebral approach is is actually inhibiting someone from flowing. It sounds like you're, you know, I had written down here superpower with a question mark, and I feel like you've already answered that. You're in my mind." Your superpower is your one, your instincts, and two, your ability to trust your instincts. It sounds yeah. like you are just very much a flow person. Yeah, well, the the, the instincts are guided by uh, you know it, it, if something's coming out and it gives me that feeling, you know, as I, like I mentioned to you before, it could could be that the words that are coming out make no sense at all, but if there's something coming out of me that gives me that feeling i know it's good and i it's not I'm, I'm it's not like i'm saying i know it's good therefore somebody else will like it i don't do it that way i i do it to make me like it <laughs> you know yep. if i yep. if i get the chill from it that's you know i i may work on it a little bit to fix it up a little bit and but whatever I, i'm i'm looking for that <clears throat> that that feeling you know and i would say that the, the thing that set me apart when I finally got my staff writing job at April Blackwood Music in the city, that was huge to me. I didn't have to sell my songs for $30 anymore. I was on a, a draw every week that was very comfortable. And and this, this is back in the time when 
most people that were staff writers, you know, like uh, Barry Mann, Cynthia Weil, uh, Jerry Goffin, Carol King, these, these people, Ellie Greenwich, wonderful people, and I, I liked them all. Uh, they were more into writing. Somebody would come into their office and say, Bobby V is coming up for a session. He needs a song in two weeks. And uh, they would immediately try to write something for Bobby V. And it might have a hint of his biggest hit in it or something like that. When I was writing for April Blackwood, I had told the, 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 my friends there, David Rosner and the person, and Jerry Typer, I said, look, I, I said, I'd rather not be told about somebody coming. I'd rather just write something that means something to me and I'll leave it up to you guys to see if you can find something. And I said, but I don't really want to be told that somebody's coming up for a session. I don't want to write that way. So I would just get off to the side and just write what, what felt good to me. And then they they did this miracle job of finding outlets for it. I might say I am one time I did, did it a little different and David Rosner who was, got maybe a guy as responsible as any for connecting me to the, the producers that recorded the, my songs. Uh, he, he came to me one day, he said, he said, I know Chip, that you've asked not to be uh, to, told when somebody's coming for a session. He said, but I, I just got a call from, from um, Jackie DeShannon, his manager. And she specifically asked if you would try to write her a song. Would you do that? And uh, it, it just made me feel good. So yeah, I broke my rule and I did write, I can make it with you for her. And it was uh -huh. a hit by her and, and the Pozo Seiko singers. But, but see, I'd, I'd venture to say that's a little bit different because the other way, when people are hearing someone's coming up, they're trying to cater to what the market wants. Whereas she came to you and she said, I want Chip Taylor. Like, you, I think it's slightly different. Don't you? Like yeah. she, it wasn't yeah. like you were just some random guy that, and right. then you had to scramble and try to please her. Right. She was actually going like, Hey, I like you do what you do. So I think it's slightly yeah, different. Yeah, like true. you drew it to you as opposed yeah. to going out. Um, yeah, that's well said. You know, I, it's it's funny as I'm listening to you. I'm thinking of all the people I've now interviewed in all different fields. You know, entrepreneurs, producers, everything. And a lot of people I sit down with will say the opposite. And this is what I find fascinating. It's like there is no right answer. And anybody who's listening, you know, <laughs> you should know that. You've heard whatever. I've had sixty something interviews, sure. and you hear a lot of people say. You know, you need to know your audience. You need to figure out what the market wants and then work backward. And then you hear another group of people like yourself say, screw the market, follow your gut and the market will come to you. And I don't know it, if that's the last part if that's always in the <laughs> Yeah, mate, you know, actually, you know what? I guess you're right. It's screw the market, follow your gut and you will be proud of the work you produce. Whether the market comes to you or not is in someone else's hands. Yeah. And, and that's, and you, you know, you can't, you, you're right. I mean, and I think sometimes the people that are, I, I, I don't know where I land in, in that, on that whole, you know, topic, but right. I think it depends on what it is I'm working on or, or what's happening. But I think I, I will agree with you 
whenever I'm in a creative endeavor, it it feels the best, certainly, to be following my own gut and my own heart. Now, <laughs> whether that puts food on the table or not is a whole other right. question, I guess. Right, right. You know? Yeah, I, I, it, it's uh, kind of interesting, you know, like I, I would say for the most part, the the writers that that I liked best over a period of time were they seem more intuitive, more let, letting things flow, uh, yeah. and and the ones that were more cerebral, I, I I didn't gravitate to. But that being said, I mean, for example, John Prine is is a friend of mine and one of my favorites. Always has been since I first met him. I I love. I love his songs and I love the spirit of which he writes. And I think he writes very similar manner that I, that I do. We write different, but I think it comes from a similar place. Towns Van Zandt. I loved, loved his writing. Chris Christopherson, my, he's my friend. And he, he, he writes from that same spirit. You can tell that Chris Christopherson's lines just flow out and he makes them work, but he's feeling something when they flow out. So they don't flow out exactly the way somebody else would say that. They flow out of them in just a slightly different kind of way, and so, yeah. so that's that's what brings it for me. Brings his magic to the table. Those are probably the two most influential people in my life, as far as singer songwriters, probably Chris and, and John. Uh, but but I was friends with Guy Clark too. Now guys are like a cere- cerebral kind of writer. He makes lists of things and thinks. But in that framework, he still lets his mind go off and just kind of works those things into songs. But I've gotten to, you know, now that he's passed away, I do a lot of listening to to Guy, maybe more than I did before. And and uh, his, I mean, his Dublin Blues album was always a favorite of mine. I, I drove off the road when I first heard the title song to listen well, to. Him. Your 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 lead. Oh, sorry. Go on. Go on. <laughs> I just. All of a sudden, I got a cramp in my leg. <laughs> uh, I, well, I, I was going to say you were leading me towards something that I, I was uh, wanted to ask you about, which is we're talking about instincts and using your gut and and the chill factor and everything. But you have produced such a massive amount of content. I'm curious to know, even though you work on instinct, you must have some kind of process, whether you're conscious of it or not, I don't know, some kind of rituals or habits or routines. Could you, could you kind of like, I don't know if it's as easy for you. It sounds like it might not be as easy for you to talk about it because you are so instinctive, but any, anything on those uh, rituals or habits? Well, I think a lot of my writing is, making sense of what just came out of me, <laughs> you know, the this, this start of songs. I'm not exactly sure what you're talking about, but, uh, uh, you know, I, uh, when I talk about, you know, crafting is like probably the last part of what I do, you know, and uh, my guitar player, John Platania, brilliant John, he played with Dan Morrison all those years and, Bonnie Raitt, he's mainly known for moon dance and domino and all those things. Huh. And uh, he's my great buddy. And he's, he always says, yeah, you know, but 
he's when you finally put it down, if I, you craft as good as anybody crafts. I, I don't think you never would say that, but maybe that's true. I have to save something of this magic that I heard, make some sense of it, I guess. But uh, well, no, you don't. I and don't. I, and I, no, you don't have to make sense of it, and that's that's what's fascinating to me. I, you know, with screenwriters, I think there's a lot of that where there are screenwriting books that talk about story structure, and yeah. they can be really <laughs> helpful. But then you see a guy like Stephen mm-hmm. Gagan who wrote Traffic, which I think is a masterpiece that, that mm-hmm. Steven Soderbergh uh, directed. And you see him speak about writing and he's like, he's like, no, 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 no. Don't pay attention to that. Just write. Now, yeah. I, I always wonder with someone like that or someone like yourself, is it just that the instincts for storytelling are just so good and so ingrained and maybe even go back as far as your dad telling right. all those tales and you just like, it's in your DNA or, or not even in your DNA, maybe being a kid and hearing those stories, like not even realizing you were learning, but you maybe your dad was such a, a great spinner of tales that you just instinctively like we're getting training at this young age. And I'm and, sure this is true. You know what I mean? It's, it's yeah. really, it's really interesting to hear like you, how you, almost don't even want to uh want to talk about it because it could it's it's like it does it sounds like magic for you i guess i was kind of just getting at like how often are you writing every day are you sitting down is yeah. it just a part of your life like breathing yeah it it, it really i'm and i'm extraordinarily prolific in the last many years the last several years uh, yeah i read something about you that you were uh, since 2000, you have, what was it? Since 2000, you've produced almost, almost an album a year and you've, you've done well, like, is this true? Well, released 27 albums, uh, since 2000. Is that possible? Yeah, probably. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, but, but a- you know, like for example, uh, here, this might take a little different, uh, turn in the way I would do things. Um, uh, when, I've always liked harmony singing, you know, and, and back in 2001, when I was playing South by Southwest, a young lady came to my show and I was very taken by her before the show. And, I, and uh, she just graduated from Berkeley and she was a violinist, a fiddle player. And uh, she came to my show and I kind of remember seeing her in the audience and playing a lot of songs in her direction. <laughs> and after the show, I, I asked if, uh, she, if she was playing around. She said she was playing at a record store the next day. And I went to see her at the record store, and I really liked what I heard. And I asked her, I, I said, uh, Carrie, you, I have a show coming up on Thursday. You want to join me in, down at Green Hall? She said, yeah. <laughs> I said, okay, I'll give you, I'll show you the set list. We'll rehearse a little bit. And he said, fine. So we did that. And I had an, all of a sudden I had another tour in Holland and John, my guitar player couldn't make it. And, and, uh, at the last minute I called her, I said, Carrie, this is what happened. John can't make this thing. I said, do, do you, would you like to join me in two weeks over in Holland? She said, yeah. <laughs> I I hung the phone up and I called her back. I said, Carrie, 
would you like to just play with me from now on in? <laughs> she said, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so we went off together, and she had never sung before. And she said she didn't, couldn't sing. She didn't have a voice that was pleasant to listen to. I said, so I asked her to try to sing some of the choruses with me, even if she sang in unison or harmony. And all of a sudden, she started to sing, and she sounded terrific. Then I wrote... I told her we were going to do a duet about the fifth show into the tour. And she fought me. She said, no, no, I'm not doing it. I said, yes, you're going to do it. And I rehearsed uh, the song I had written years ago with it, which is the first interracial hit by Billy Vera and Judy Clay. It's called Storybook Children. And, and she learned it. And, and when we played that, uh, that night, I mean, it was in the second part of the show and my fans were really liking her being on stage with me. And then when we started that song and she walked to the microphone and I said, uh, you got your world and I got mine. And it's a shame. And she walked to the microphone and said two grown up worlds that could never be the same. And that audience went crazy. We couldn't even go on. And, and we had to start all over. <laughs> and that was the start of it. I said, Carrie, that's it. We're going to do a duet album. So I wrote uh, songs for a duet album right away. And that was a little different process. I really, that was the start of the stories to say that that process was a little different because I was so concerned. I wanted her to have success <laughs> and I wanted these songs to be just right. And, uh, uh, and so I, it, they were very inspired because it was all thinking about her and extremely inspired songs. But I, I wanted to make sure that they were finally very, very all all the little nuances were f right you know so i worked harder on those songs to to make them right and we had uh, the three huge hits on the on the folk america the americana charts in the right in a row and we were the new sensation and she here's a girl that never sang before in her life and now she's got a career of her own and she's out and doing fine she's and she's great so that writing for somebody else you know, that you know that's sitting next, going to sing with you and something. That's a little different. What was it in her that made you think she could sing? Well, first of all, I, I always think anybody can sing, you know. Uh, I had that feeling, like it didn't make any difference as long as the person had emotion and could, you know, get something out of them, even if they sang flat, it didn't make any difference. It could figure something out to do. But when Carrie, she was the opposite of that. She sang so in tune and, and, and within, I was hoping really Matt, that she could sing when I started and <laughs> she said, no, she couldn't, but that, that never stopped me. Cause I always had this thing that every, I could help anybody. So, and, uh, and you just got her to sing from her emotion of things and not be thinking about, you know, cause she was so schooled from Berkeley with the music. Her pitch was amazing. And, uh, uh, and she, and she, she very overnight, she was great. And that was, that was a wonderful story. Yeah. yeah. Well, you just said something, um, that is kind of just stuck with me. You said, I always had this thing, that I could help anybody. And I was going to ask what, what do you think, like what qualities do your friends or your family or people outside of 
music and the music world, what would you say they value about you the most? Is it that, that you could always, I mean, you were talking about it in the context of helping them with music, I think, but is it, is it, is that a spirit or a quality that you think people, like if, if I were to say to, you know, your best friends or or your brothers, like, you know, what is it about Chip? What's his thing? What do you think they would say? Well, I, I know I know what my daughter said to me not too long ago, uh, and I and I guess it's kind of, it's like uh, when somebody says something, I usually don't let it just fall off the table. You know, if somebody's saying something and I don't quite understand it, I I try to understand it. So if somebody's talking to me about something that's going on, I, I tend to listen to them and then maybe ask questions about it and inquire about it so that I get the real nice picture of what exactly they were experiencing or what they were talking about. And uh, so um, my, my daughter says that she likes that I do that. that I, I, that's a good that I, listener. Yeah, I guess that's what she says. I don't. I don't like to jump to conclusions really fast and yeah. get on with something. If somebody, if, well, look, if I'm in the middle of writing a song and someone comes over to talk to me, I may not pay much attention. <laughs> I don't mean that. I'm such a good listener to everybody all the time. But if I do listen, I tend to, I tend to try to, you know, get to the bottom of what they're they're saying i mean a lot of people they're shy and a lot of people just don't even think anybody want to hear it and they start to talk and they and they quickly get on with it to short shortcut themselves and usually i try to get get more into that pull it out of them yeah yeah yeah, a little bit what how many kids yeah it's good for me to do that uh uh, i have two two um two two kids a son and a daughter are they in music or no, or in the arts in any way? My my son, when he graduated Penn State years ago, they offered something at AT and T to you know, which was more money than something else would have offered, and he took that. And now he commands a team of people with AT and T, and he's a very nice, wonderful, kind guy, and a very good leader. Uh, in that. Uh, I've watched him lead and people love him. People who work for him love him. And my daughter, Kelly, she's a dean at uh, law school at Yale. And uh, wonderful, level-headed, good, good-hearted people. And I owe that, uh, I would say a lot of that is because of my wife, Joan. She is just the kindest, uh, not-for-herself kind of person. She's not in nobody's she's not music oriented or anything like she's just a good person and a good friend and uh they got a lot of wonderful qualities from joan that's so cool to hear hear you talk like that that's uh that's really nice it's really sweet i mean it sounds like on on both ends your family your dad your mom and then your kids it sounds like you you know you guys got a good thing going on Uh, yeah yeah, I've been blessed. I mean, I, <clears throat> I mean, my, you know, my, my, the brothers are a little different in different manners, you know, different what they think about, what they believe in and stuff like that. But they're kind people. They're wonderful guys. And, uh, you know, I, 
who I, I have pictures of them around in my family. And when I, when I think I'm going off the deep end, you know, a little bit, and I'm not really happy with myself, they're, they're inspiring, you know, for me to, to get the best out of myself, you know, get back on that road, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's really great. Family. You can't replace them. Yeah, you know, I got that. <clears throat> my son has two twin boys, and you know, he lives in Hermosa Beach in California. <clears throat> and I love seeing the boys; they're nine years old. Uh, my my daughter and her, and her husband Frank they have uh, uh, three girls, and one is uh, twenty one, the other is eighteen, the other is fourteen, and uh, and they they've sung with me. And that's been one of the, my favorite things ever. I did an album with them that was a wonderful album. It was on, on, on Folkways, was that the name of the label? I forget the name. And it was a kind of a heralded album at the time. And we played shows together, and they joined me on stage often. And, uh, you know, they, now, now they're going to school. Riley's at MIT. And, and Kate just went to UCLA uh, a couple of days ago to start her thing there. And and uh, Sam is still in high school. But uh, uh, the reign of the uh, grandchildren and, and their grandfather singing together may come down to an end. And that's too bad. I I had more fun with them on stage when I when I was inducted in the Songwriters Hall of Fame. They always allowed they allowed everybody to. Sang one one of their songs, and, and the I girls mean, and I sang "Wild Thing" together, and took brought the house down. They were so that cool. is so cool. Yeah. I mean, it's so cool for you to be able to do that with your grandkids, and then for them to be like, you know, my grandfather was just inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame is is pretty pretty cool, and that they got to actually share the stage with you. Yeah, um, and they should. And by that time, they were kind of well worn, and they it, they weren't. They weren't nervous at all. <laughs> they were great. And are you a, um, I would imagine seeing you live, you must, you must spin some tales in between songs. Are you, or do you talk at all? Yeah, probably audience? talk too much. <laughs> yeah, No, I could, I could see cause you're, cause you're such a, you're, you're a great storyteller. Uh, so I would imagine. Oh, actually, you know what? Tell us, tell us where you are. Cause you're, are you in Yonkers right now or are you in, no. in Manhattan? <laughs> I have an apartment in Manhattan, uh, in the East Side, 54th Street and First Avenue. I'm up. I'm up on the 15th floor, a little terrace. It kind of, in a, some manner or form, you can see the East River from here. And uh, I used to uh, bartend right around the corner from you. Which which place? Turtle Bay Grill and Lounge. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, when it opened in the late yeah, 90s, Second early. Avenue. Yep, 52nd and Second. Um, so, so where could people, uh, you know, I don't know if you're doing it nationally anymore or just, uh, just, uh, locally, or you're just releasing albums, but if people wanted to go check you out, could they, do they have that opportunity? Yeah, well, these days? The, the, you know, it's the, t the day and age where physical CDs, we still have them when I go on tour and stuff like that, but it's mostly, uh, uh, if you go to Spotify or any of the streaming sites, I have a fairly big presence there. Uh, in fact, I have an album that was just released yesterday on Spotify. <laughs> you talk about writing a lot. I, I was 
in the middle of doing the work with Kerry Rodriguez and then working with another young lady from Canada, Kendall Carson, and my own album, somehow or other, I totally forgot about an album I had done back 10 years ago. <laughs> and, uh, and I heard it about five, I heard one of the tracks about three or four months ago. I said, what the heck? And I went and I got the whole album and I listened to it and I really loved it. And so it's out yesterday. It's called Time Waits for No Little Girls. And we were we were going to say the uh, lost tapes from 2008, 2010. That's when you know you're prolific, Chip, when you, when you forget yeah. about a whole yeah. album. <laughs> and and it's, a, it's a really nice one. That's it's, great. Well, yeah. well, what I want to do, well, we, everybody listening, I'm going to put, I'm going to get the the links and the names of everything from Chip and they will be in the show notes. So when you're listening, you can, you know, you can go look, look on the description and there'll be a link you could click and you could get to him. So I, I want, you know, I would imagine if you're listening right now, um, you know, I've been sitting here talking to him for an hour and I'm, I just want to go hear his music. Um, so I'm imagining you may be the same way. So we will make it as easy as possible for you guys to get to his, his material. Um, and I, I got, I got this little pop quiz chip that I've been doing the last couple of interviews and, um, I, I'm kind of liking it. So I'm going to give it to you. If you're okay with that, I don't know. I'm the I'm not good at these. It's pretty. Questions. It's pretty easy. It's pretty easy. It's a, whatever you say is right. Um, so here it is. There's three things. The first one is complete this sentence. The word "no" actually means what? Uh, actually, it becomes a wonderful challenge when somebody says no. That, that, that that's all. I look, I don't. I don't ever take no as no. Yeah. Cool. That's a great answer. I know you don't because you told that story from uh, your buddy. I think it was Greg, and then you going in. That's yeah. and waiting. That's that's great. I All don't right, mean then. to say that you know, like in some some manner, some sometimes if there's somebody you respect, you know, you're doing something. Somebody says, you know, I think you're in the wrong direction there. You really respect them. That's almost a no to what you where you were going. And if it's somebody you respect, you might just say, maybe I got two zoned in on my own maybe if i back up here i'll think you see it a little differently and so that might be a good correction that you make you back up and you see it ah i think i see this a little different now you know because somebody that you really respect says something to you so well it's more like an adjustment or a course correction than it is like shutting you down yeah Yeah, right no yeah those those are fun those (laughs) yeah yeah they're they're guideposts sometimes that's what i would say oh really no kidding no (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's good. All right, think- well, here's here's the next one for you. Uh, off the top of your head, first book, film, song, or quote that comes to mind right now, and why? Oh, geez, I'm not much of a reader. I was just telling my granddaughter. Well, no, that- I'm saying if it, it doesn't have to be a book, it could be a film. It could be a it could be a lyric. It could be one of your own lyrics. It could be somebody else. It could be a quote. It could be a movie. You know. Oh. Whatever, whatever pops in your head. Well, just, just right now, I just two things popped in my head about songs. One was from my my the first song I wrote was "Faded Blue." That's the kind of feeling, honey, I got from loving you. That's the first thing I thought of. And then for some reason, I I I remembered uh, a line from. 
Chris Christopherson song, Busted Flat in Baton Rouge and Heading for the Trains. That, that, I like that. That's awesome. That That's very cool. Okay, now last one, last one. If you could give your younger self advice, one, what age would you choose to intervene in your younger <laughs> self's life? And then what would the advice be? She uh, was... Uh, well, I certainly would try to intervene at an early age uh, to uh, to make the adjustments that you have to make when you become when you first uh, start to fall in love or something like that, and uh, and the things to look at and the beauty of the beauty of people, uh, not just the beauty of attractions. And uh, to try to combine the two into into the way you guide yourself with your relationships. It's beautifully put. You should be a songwriter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's that's good. I, I'm I'm just so uh, I'm so happy and grateful that you sat down with me. This has been pretty okay. awesome, man. I'm Thank really you. really thankful. Any time, as they say. Yeah. You're nice to talk to. Well, hopefully you'll get, thank you. Hopefully you'll get at least two more listeners out of this. <laughs> no, I think, Listen, I think you know, anybody. I got a suggestion. Yeah. Don't edit your things out that you talked about. Don't edit any of those out because you, I was, I was enjoying them as a listener. Yeah. You know what? Thank you for saying that. I, um, in general, I don't. I just leave it as a raw conversation, you know, unless there's like a, you know, some huge technical glitch. Um, I I like to uh, let everybody hear us, warts and all. And um, it seems like from the feedback that people, you know, I guess it's the same thing as you were saying before, you know, some people dig it, some people don't. And, and you know, <laughs> but right now that's, that's the way I like it. So that's how it's going to be for now and, you know, take it as it comes. But uh, really, really thank you for sitting down. You, you're, you're an amazing guy. My, my pleasure, Matt. Wow, I dig that guy. What a cool cat, really. And I want to give a shout out to my cousin, Artie Tobia, back in New York, a great singer-songwriter in his own right. I'm actually going to add a link in the show notes to his website as well so you can check out his music. He's the one responsible for us having Chip here in the first place, so thank you, cuz. Okay, takeaways. First one, maybe I'm being biased because the show is called 10,000 No's, but I want to point out Chip's buddy, Greg, from the beginning of the story. Chip said of Greg, he just wouldn't take no for an answer. And that is so important. Even when we're talking about a guy like Chip, whose music just seemed to make executives say, yeah, bring him in, right? I mean, just on the merit of the music. But still, He credits Greg and his resilient attitude for getting them going. So that has to go in my takeaways. Number two, this one's actually going to go to Chip's dad. I love that Chip's dad would say, what is this day going to bring us now? It's such a great lesson for parents. The way he instilled storytelling in his kids with his approach to his days and also the way he instilled instinct with that willingness to go where the day might possibly bring them. And three, I saved because it's more than just one moment or one thing that Chip said. It's what he embodies, and that is instinct. 
A lot of people talk about using their instincts, and then a whole other camp thinks of instincts as maybe not being reliable as an engine over the long haul because sometimes it strikes and sometimes it doesn't. But what blew me away about Chip is that he creates from a place of purity, but he still does it with such massive volume. It's just awe-inspiring. I mean, the fact that he had forgotten about an entire album he wrote and produced, that's insane to me. Because it speaks volumes about the volumes he's created. Okay, that's it. Thank you, Chip Taylor. What a guy. And and thank you all for listening and spreading the word. If you like my conversation with Chip today, you should probably go back and listen to my conversations with directing producer Lawrence Trilling, who used his instinct to great effect on shows like Scrubs, Parenthood, and Goliath, where he directed me and ran the show, uh, if you haven't listened to it yet. And my conversation with actor, rapper, musician Utkarsh Ambedkar, really unique and talented dude. Tune in next week. I've got the creator and showrunner of TNT's popular Navy drama, The Last Ship, Steve Kane. Tons of takeaways in that one. It was like a great lecture on perseverance and growth. That'll be available next Friday. And if you're subscribed to us on iTunes or Spotify, you'll get it automatically on your devices. That is it. We'll see you on the next one. And be on the lookout for our new product releasing every week now, Monday Morsels for bite-sized solo riffs on a lot of the themes we cover here. If you got three to five minutes, check them out. Okay, go in peace. <laughs>